One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to the Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at the Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins coming out later this year. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at the Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. We're joined once again by guest host Andrew Carell, holding it down for his final episode. Andrew, I hope you brought some big surprises for us today. I sure hope so, too. Great. All right. So first, a bit of housekeeping. Last week, I predicted Laura Loomer had a good chance of winning her race in Florida for a house seat. I thought she was going to do better than people expected. And you know what? I was right. Now, she didn't win the Republican primary, and ultimately, she lost by almost seven points. And people might say, well, Will, that's not that good. But I would argue that it is good. Well, it's not good for the country, Lord knows. But I think it's a surprisingly strong showing for someone who is, I think, best known for locking herself up in front of a Twitter headquarters with a a Holocaust star on her arm and ranting and raving against a former Speaker of the Florida House. So while ultimately she almost lost by double digits, I think it was still a big surprise that she came so close. And I think it is ominous about where the GOP is headed, as well as where the future of our senior citizens, since so much of this primary was premised on uh, getting turnout from the villages. Andrew, what do you think? Yeah, I feel bad for the boomers that were so supportive of her, and they spent their time making that video and everything. Got these custom, the boomers for Loomer, and they got the custom paint jobs on the golf carts. Yeah, like they spent all this time for nothing. And also, she's one of them. I feel like it portends dark things about the future of the party. But also, for comedy's sake, it kind of sucks that she didn't win because it would have been very funny. (laughs) Well, Andrew, moving on, there's an interesting story from Rolling Stone from a reporter named Adam Ronsley, as well as a little note, a sort of a marginal figure named Aswin Subsang, some people may have heard of. It's a very interesting story. It's about Donald Trump bragging about what he some sort of unspecified knowledge he has about French President Emmanuel Macron's sex life. This is one of the odder ones. I mean, Swin, as we know, sort of specializes in the sub-sub genre of Trump making unspecified allusions to another person's sex life. Famously, in the Ohio Senate primary, he would say things, according to Swin, like he would make implications about Republican candidate Josh Mandel's sex life and his sexual interests and sort of say like, ooh, yeah, ooh, I got the ick from him, as they say. So here's Swin and Adam writing at the about the Macron situation. We say, Trump has bragged some of his closest associates that he knew illicit details about the love life of French President Emmanuel Macron. And the former president claimed that he learned about some of his dirt through intelligence he had seen or been briefed on. Now, what's interesting about this is that 
that we know from the Mar-a-Lago search that some of the material seized, it was referenced as related to the Roger Stone pardon. And then under that, as though they were somehow linked, it said information about Emmanuel Macron. Andrew, what do you think is going on here? Yeah, I saw the, I wouldn't call it a conspiracy theory, but the theorizing among sort of legal eagles on Twitter, I guess Empty Wheel or whoever else, suggesting that Roger may have received the pardon for the Macron leaks. But like, it's mostly just more of, actually, I would say Trump's obsession with other people's sex lives is pretty much the only legitimately funny thing left about him. So it doesn't seem like there was anything of national security interest in this other than maybe like Trudeau likes to like, I can't even come up with what would be weird in the mind of Donald Trump, because I feel like him saying Josh Mandel's sex life is weird or whatever he said about him, like it probably could just be like he likes role playing or some something that to a boomer <laughs> seems very weird. I'm just cracking up at like you trying to reverse engineer what this could be. I'm not saying that Josh Mandel is into role play, which I don't have any information pertaining to that, so please don't. Well, I'm going to pull you out of this one, Andrew. I'm going to help you out. It is interesting to me, this idea, I guess this hints at something larger, which is this idea that Trump is kind of ambling around Mar-a-Lago saying, like, let's say Macron might be on CNN and Trump would say, like, ooh, that guy, leather, I'll leave it at that. Oh, to some guy at the hot bar, and they're like, what is this guy talking about? This is one of these classic stories where it's like, I don't know if this will ever resurface again, and it leaves me with more questions than answers. I think it's a very interesting story, but I think there is much more to be discovered, I guess. I mean, obviously, Macron famously married his high school teacher, so, I mean, this guy is hes kind of out there already. You alluded to this, the Roger Stone-Macron connection, which I don't think we've talked about here on the podcast before. So, back in a few years ago when Macron was running for president, there was a sort of, there were a bunch of hacked messages that came out that appeared to be sort of in an echo of the Russian hack of democratic emails in the United States. And a guy named Jack Posobiec, a Pizzagate guy extraordinaire, was the main booster of these. And so he said, oh, you guys got to check out Macron leaks and all this. Now, Roger Stone is sort of a, a mentor to Jack Posobiec. So this is like a little hazy. I think there's a lot of implications here, but we really don't know a ton about Macron leaks. And we really, I think, know less about how they might connect to this pardon or Jack Posobiec. But it is one of these things that makes you go, hmm. Yeah. Did the Macron leaks even yield anything worthwhile? I remember it was in 2017, right, when he was running against Marine Le Pen. I don't believe they did. And I think they came out like really, really close to the election, like maybe even like a day or two before. They have this thing in France where like they can't report on politics like right before the election or something. It was not as effective as, say, like hacking John Podesta's emails. But also you remember when that came out in 2017, Trump at the time was playing footsie with Marine Le Pen because he was like, I don't know if I like Macron anymore. And then after that election... Macron invited him as like the special guest for a state dinner in France and there was the parade and everything and Trump all of a sudden loved Macron again. So it might have been all for naught that they like if there was some connection to Roger Stone, who famously calls himself a dirty trickster, it all for was was for nothing because Trump ended up liking Macron all because he threw him a military parade and then Trump came home and was like, I want that too. If you remember, he wanted to throw a military parade after seeing France do it of all places. Well, it's really a complicated relationship, but when has American Gallic relationship not been complicated? I will say, Mr. Former President, sir let Emmanuel Macron do his thing and let's stop spreading any rumors here. Although very interesting. The final thing I, I would highlight about the Swin and Adam Ronsley story here is that there was like sort of an investigation. And so they say both French and U.S. officials worked to figure out what Trump had on Macron. And if any of it was sensitive, the officials in both nations wanted to know if this discovery signified some kind of national security breach. Very, very strange stuff here. And I think if this turns out to be related to the confidential stuff, I mean, if Trump lifted some dirty messages from Macron or something, 
something. I mean, what a world to live in. It's just like you think about the Swin and Adam mentioned in the piece about how Stephanie Grisham wrote in her book that Trump like pulled her aside on Air Force One after seeing Justin Trudeau on TV and whispered to her about just made some claim about Justin Trudeau's mom's sex life. And you could just see like the entire national security apparatus, like if somebody overheard that just like digging to make what does he have on Justin Trudeau's mom? And all it is is just like a rumor he heard that she likes to do weird stuff in bed. What a mess. Well, Andrew, speaking of crimes in Florida or potential crimes in Florida, there's a very, very interesting legal case developing with James O'Keefe, the prankster prince himself, and Project Veritas that I really wanted to dive into. Let's do it. Okay. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So here on Fever Dreams, we like to keep up with the legal situations involving prankster prince himself, James O'Keefe, and his various legal travails. A few weeks ago, we talked about one of his former employees suing him and Project Veritas implying that it was a sort of animal house place where sexual harassment of female employees ran rife, that they had a corporate apartment where someone OD'd on drugs, and I I think most memorably, that they had a party and James O'Keefe's invitees were pooping on the the deck of a boat. No real, like, elevated way to put that one. More recently, though, moving from civil court to criminal court. So, for at least a year now, the Justice Department has, and more than that, I guess, going back to the Trump administration, the Justice Department has been investigating how Project Veritas got its hands on Joe Biden's daughter, Ashley Biden's diary. And last week, we got some very interesting guilty pleas in that case. Two, I would say, scuzzy Florida characters, if you want to call them maybe characters in a Hold Steady song or whatever. These are folks named Amy Harris and Robert Kurlander were involved in the theft of Ashley Biden's diary from essentially Ashley Biden had left this diary at this apartment where she was staying, and then she moved out and planning to retrieve her belongings at a later date. This Amy Harris person takes the diary, and then they start trying to shop it to various conservative outlets and characters. And so last week, they pleaded guilty to this conspiracy to do some interstate theft and and trafficking in stolen goods. What I think is interesting is this offers us a little more insight into how this made its way to this diary, made its way to Project Veritas. And so in this indictment or this guilty plea, they initially try to shop it to the Trump campaign and are told essentially, no, call the FBI. However, one of the people they shop it to then says, or maybe you should just give it to Project Veritas. So I forget which outlet. Some outlet sort of took this as like Trump campaign vindicated, which I would not exactly say. So this makes it to Project Veritas. And here's the twist in this guilty plea. So for a while now, James O'Keefe, who got his place raided by the FBI, his various associates have been raided by the FBI as part of this investigation. They've been saying, well, look, this is a First Amendment thing. Journalists are allowed to report on stolen documents, things that they get in from someone who maybe didn't have the right to take them. But journalists are allowed to report on that. However, the twist is, and as everyone, every journalist who sits through a legal training knows, you can't direct the stealing. You can't say, I can't hire a burglar to go break into City Hall and lift some documents for me. Or in this case, where they get into trouble is that according to this guilty plea from these sort of one-time Project Veritas associates, they bring the diary to Project Veritas, which puts them up in a hotel and flies them around, and they are offered $40,000. Okay, so already, typically journalists don't pay people. In fact, it pretty much never happens. And so already we're crossing some lines here. But ultimately, where the red line is crossed, according to the feds, is when Project Veritas then says, why don't you go back to that apartment and then do some more stealing and get us some more stuff to maybe corroborate this diary, maybe get some more materials. 
And at that point, that's where Project Veritas and its employees are getting into some criminal liability. It kind of underscores what the sort of joke is beneath all this when it comes to James O'Keefe. It's like he's wanted both ways as we've seen it play out in court this entire time because he wants the protections and he wants to, to claim to be a journalistic organization, ostensibly journalistic. But then you'll remember when the Times obtained a bunch of internal memos related to this case, he tried to censor them. This sort of allegedly Project Veritas directing these people to go do more crimes to verify the documents just underscores that like this is Project Veritas is basically the conservative projection of what journalism is. They think that when mainstream news organizations report something negative or unflattering about a conservative, that's just like they did it by any means. And so they think that's that that's just the way that you operated. Journalism is just the act of reporting negative things on behalf of the Trump campaign. And so it's just like it sort of rips the mask off the whole operation. If true, of course, I don't know if, if the feds have actually proven that Project Veritas directed them. But well, it's funny you say that I, I've had conversations with Project Veritas's lawyers in another case, and they said, well, we're just going undercover, just like y'all do. We're using identities and stuff like that, just like any other journalist would do. And I said, well, actually, like pretty much no can't do that. go undercover. Yeah. I mean, in the past couple decades. You have to disclose who you are. Yeah. And I said that to him. And then he said, well, maybe you should. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the lack of, of knowledge on their side about like, or I think the lack of caring at all about actual journalistic ethics, I think is really exposed here. So ultimately, this diary makes its way to National File, which is like a far more scuzzy operation than even Project Veritas, which publishes it really really vile stuff in it just in terms of Ashley Biden has talked about her struggles with addiction. If you can imagine sort of publishing someone's diary from rehab about their all their emotions, stuff like this. I read it, obviously, because it was making its round on the right wing. Not really much to discuss there, but really vile stuff. Project Veritas claims they were not involved in its publication. It sort of seems, reading between the lines of the National File story, that someone at Project Veritas got fed up with them not publishing it and leaked it to National File. So nevertheless, James O'Keefe here is maybe if he is not individually facing criminal liability, I think the heat is definitely getting ramped up with this guilty plea. And there is definitely now this conservative fixation on the diary, too. I think there was, we've talked about it before offline about how there was like, there's a passage in it that alleges there's always some groomer or QAnon angle to all of this. And I think there's now a fixation on it being like, why isn't the media reporting that that Ashley was a victim of sexual abuse. So the implication for, like, basically a lot of people might not be aware of this because this has really been in the fever swamps. Because there's a point where she says in the diary, am I messed up because I took showers with my dad? Okay. Among many, 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 she lists all these things from her childhood that were complicated, how early she was having sex and all these things. that, And she just mentions that that I took showers with my dad at a young age may be inappropriate, right? Is that how she framed it? Yeah, exactly. It's sort of like a kid taking a shower with their father. And so this has become grist for the, the Pizzagate mill, the Joe Biden is a pedophile file industry. And so that is why the sort of right-wing take on this guilty plea was the Justice Department has confirmed that the Ashley Biden diary is real. Joe Biden is a pedophile. So that, I mean, if people are wondering why this diary was sort of such a hot topic on the right wing, I think this can be sort of hard to discern from the, the mainstream media coverage of this case. And so, I mean, that, you know, understandably, I think people are have been sort of reluctant to really get into the guts of the story here. That's the deal. So yeah, Project Veritas, I think this story, I think especially with the Mar-a-Lago search and everything, this story has been kind of bubbling under the surface. And I think a lot of people, even who follow this stuff, who are interested in it, have not been aware of the fact that there's like an FBI investigation into Project Veritas. This was very interesting. And I think it will only continue to heat up. All right, Andrew, 
you are a musician yourself. You've been involved in the music industry. There's a hot new song out by a character we've discussed here. Let's just say he's never taken that beanie off. That's right, folks. It's Tim Pool. Tim Pool, how to sum him up? I, I think Breitbart recently described him as indescribable or uncategorizable. And honestly, they're not wrong. He's a guy who used to be sort of a new media guy with a lot of digital news startups. And then I think he realized there was like a lot to be monetized as a look, I'm a liberal, but like these liberals are going too far. And a guy who sort of quickly is only supportive of conservative causes and Trump. He lives in a sort of compound out in Maryland. He's a very interesting character who's always getting in in little jams. But now he's used some of his wealth to fund, I don't know if we would describe this as a rock song, emo song. We can play a clip of it here. It's called Only Ever Wanted. Did you know you left me there? Staring at the heartache in my soul As I fell to pieces And to the one you're leaving for There's only one thing I want As practitioner of the craft yourself, what was your take on this song? I would call it butt rock is the phrase what a lot of people would use to describe this sort of like hollow, emotionally angsty, but sort of like 12-year-old version of what angst is. And it's crazy how much the production relies heavily on these reverse notes, which is like a studio trick to sort of usually hear that at the end of a song or like sampled throughout, sprinkled throughout liberally is how I would describe it here, where it's just like a constant presence throughout the song to sort of drive home, I guess, the melancholy or something, but it's just distracting. The other fun part about this is that the drummer on the track is the drummer from The Offspring, who was fired because he wouldn't do the vaccine. So I saw a lot of people... A little Easter egg for you folks. Yeah, Pete Parada. I think his name is. And so there was this whole like a lot of supporters of Tim Pool were saying this is like a middle finger to the offspring for letting go of their drummer by having him drum on your sick song. But yet also like as a musician, I find it really difficult to mock somebody else for making music, even though I would say this is like the lead track on now. That's what I call Incel Volume 1. The Eve 6 guy, I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, but he's very funny on Twitter. The front man from the late 90s alt rock hit makers Eve 6. He's very funny on Twitter and he originally dunked on Tim, was making fun of it hardcore. And I was like, this is very funny. Funny, but then he kind of walked it back once he realized the same thing that I, I feel like I realized too is I'd rather have Tim Pool making extremely mid butt rock than like doing his fashy ranting on YouTube every day. And I, I won't fault somebody for making music, especially this like emotionally angsty music where he's not like doing neo-Nazi hardcore punk. Like he's just writing a song about some angsty emotional trauma, I guess, that he somehow experienced from his gigantic compound in seclusion. But I guess the main issue for me is it's all part of like a larger grift with him. You get people to listen to your song because this, this hit nearly, the, I think, the top or number two on iTunes charts. So a lot of people are hearing it and a lot of people who are ne not necessarily Tim cast fans. And then you bring them in with this generic song and you get them then to listen to your near fascist rants. And that's how he brings in more people to be like, just trust this guy. He's a punk. He's one of you. He's an emo guy. He's not just some partisan YouTuber. And that's how he hooks you. That's a good point, Andrew. Kind of, It's sort of an injection into the Tim Pool brand, I guess, in terms of I sort of felt like Tim's kind of outsider status, like his skater boy cred, despite the fact that he has like a, a big skate ramp in the compound. It's been a little lacking lately. I mean, he said he voted for Trump in 2020. Eh, he was kind of becoming like a regular kind of Republican pundit. And I think this has been a good positioning thing for him. I have to say you're being very nice about not making fun of his music. I will go off, though, on the music video for this. It's shot in <laughs> yes. like it, it's shot in like an empty house like it seems like it's 
about to be a torn down house and there's this kind of there's this guy who's sort of like the tim pool stand-in and he's kind of like thinking back there's a point where like the house is lit up and and he's thinking back with him and his girl moving into this house how good things were it's clearly like these two actors okay we're gonna wander through the house and they're like wow there's a chandelier like and then when things get dark there's cracks in the house and our hero is running through the house trying to open doors and clearly like someone's standing just closing the doors in his face he's like no i think a little less money on the skate ramp a little more money on the music video conception you definitely want to analyze the video for some subtext but there's definitely none there so Andrew, we have our fun with Tim Pool, but here at the Daily Beast, we also have some serious reporting on Tim Pool. You edited a story by Robert Silverman, our resident Tim Pool expert, about the <laughs> fact that Tim's website has a plagiarism problem. What's going on there? Yeah, over a series, I think it was over just a week that that Bobby, who is a fantastic reporter, selected. He found this one reporter who has been fired, and the articles had been removed from Timcast's website. But he found a bunch of examples of plagiarism. And I guess the main point, and so did this group, NewsGuard, that is sort of this third-party organization, they found examples of it too from the same writer. But the main point, I guess, of the reporting and what was interesting about this plagiarism problem that they had is that Timbold made a career off saying, I have this website, Timcast, and I have this podcast that is the antidote to the mainstream media. You tell it like it is, the media lies, the media is evil, they're out to get you, the average listener. Don't trust those outlets. And then most of these plagiarized articles were from like CNN, Washington Post, Forbes. Not only was there a plagiarism problem, but it was plagiarizing the very outlets that Tim has made a career pretending to be the exact opposite of. The whole Tim Cast operation was sort of set up. He's going to have this news website that was going to compete with the mainstream media and in fact is just a plagiarism factory for at least one of these reporters. A lot of aggregation, which it's a content mill, perhaps harsh, but it is a content mill. So Andrew, if you were to rate Tim Pool's chances to either climb the the top of the emo industry or the news industry, which one would you say he's more talented at? Fifth wave emo? I don't know, man. Neither, can I say? He's climbing the top of the YouTube industry for sure. I gotta say, I checked out some more of his songs. He has this one where it's like this song about like governments being overthrown. It's called Will of the People. This is the one where that he thinks Muse, the band Muse, somehow stole from him. Oh, yes, yes. So this yes. song is about like pushing more than 2 million views here. But it's basically like the cycle of a government gets overthrown and then someone's like, well, sorry, we got to execute these people for the will. It's the will of the people. And that these freedom fighters become dictators and kind of this cycle continues, which is sort of which is sort of fitting with the Tim Pool ethos of like a very like shallow ideological understanding of anything. But also at the same time, this guy is like always palling around with the Proud Boys and stuff. I mean, this is not I mean, it's be one thing if this guy was like a famous pacifist. That was my take on that song. So finally, I'd like to close this segment with Tim reflecting on what the success of his totally rockin' emo song means. He tweets, The success of Only Ever Wanted proves that deep down people have a yearning for powerful emo music, but the corporate globalist elite conspire to suppress it. Now, I've heard a lot of accusations in my work about what the cabal's up to. Adrenochrome, starting wars, trying to make us all eat bugs, live in pods. This might be the first I've heard of a conspiracy to suppress emo. When I saw that tweet, I thought maybe he's like winking and nodding at people who might. I think he probably is. Maybe I should give him more credit. Yeah, but also like he does speak like that. So I don't know. I know. Damn you, Klaus Schwab. Let Tim Pool rock.
All right. <laughs> All right. Well, so who do we have as a guest this week? All right. This week, we've got Andy Kroll. He's a reporter for ProPublica and the author of an upcoming book on the Seth Rich murder and conspiracy theories that ensued after that. It's called A Death on W Street, The Murder of Seth Rich and the Age of Conspiracy. And it comes out on September 6th. I think Seth Rich's murder and the conspiracy theories around it were really sort of laid the groundwork and were an early example of a lot of the conspiracy theories we deal with today. So I'm excited to get into it. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Fever dreams like all Daily Beast journalism exist because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. Okay, today we're joined on Fever Dreams by Andy Kroll. He's an investigative reporter at ProPublica. He's the author of a new book on the Seth Rich conspiracy theory and its aftermath. It's called A Death on W Street, The Murder of Seth Rich and the Age of Conspiracy. And it comes out Tuesday. Andy, welcome to the podcast. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, guys. So, Andy, for for folks who don't know, I mean, if you could briefly sketch, like, what is the Seth Rich story about? So, in the summer of 2016... July 10th, 2016, to be precise. A young man named Seth Rich is walking home from a bar in Washington, D.C. in the early morning hours. We're talking like late 3, 30, 4 o'clock in the morning. And he's shot and killed about two blocks from his house in a neighborhood in D.C. called Bloomingdale. Seth had worked for the Democratic National Committee. He was really active in politics, Democratic politics especially. And as the police searched for who killed him, in the days and the weeks after this tragedy happened here in Washington, D.C. The story of Seth's life and his death took on this bizarre conspiratorial afterlife, you might say, online. And what I'm talking about here is people first on the far left of the political spectrum. We're talking about kind of like hardcore Bernie Sanders supporters and fans of Jill Stein, who was the Green Party candidate back then, speculating without any evidence, obviously, that Seth had somehow been killed because he was going to blow the whistle on corruption at the DNC or that he was on his way to give damning inside information about the Clintons. There's different varieties and flavors of this, but this conspiracy theory surfaces online, on, on Twitter, on Reddit, on 4chan, other places. And as time goes on, this conspiracy theory starts to undergo these different evolutions or mutations, you might say. So in August of 2016, Julian Assange of WikiLeaks goes on television and he is asked about the leaked DNC emails 
that WikiLeaks has just published that contained some embarrassing and in a few cases, I would say, mildly scandalous details about the DNC during the 2016 campaign. Assange has asked about these emails. Now, at the time, cybersecurity experts had said, and going into the future, government investigations would find that these emails had been hacked and then given to WikiLeaks by Russian-affiliated hackers, all part of a sort of intelligence campaign to disrupt the 2016 election. But Assange does something different. He dangles Seth Rich's name in just such a way to make it seem like or to leave people with the impression that Seth Rich, this, D, this, this murder DNC employee who obviously couldn't, couldn't speak up for himself, was the source of these emails and not Russian-affiliated hackers, as the experts had said. And then from there, the conspiracy theory blows up into an international phenomenon. There you have a whole sort of surge of social media activity saying, oh, Seth Rich, not Russia, was the DNC hacker, leaker. This was an inside job. This Russia stuff is, is nonsense. And this conspiracy theory just grows to enormous proportions. It eventually reaches the primetime airwaves of Fox News, where Sean Hannity becomes a huge proponent of it. And over time, it just becomes a sort of article of faith among the pro-MAGA movement, among the far right, and still in some ways on the far left as well, interestingly enough, that Seth Rich was not killed in an attempted armed robbery, which is what the police have said, that this was some kind of cover-up or some kind of inside job with Seth Rich at the center of it. And so that is the, the core of, of this new book of mine, both how does this happen? How did this pretty normal guy in Washington, D.C. become the fixation of this conspiracy theory and who are the players involved and how his family tried to fight back against it, first in the court of a public opinion where they got nowhere, and then finally in the court of law. One thing I find interesting about your book is that you really try to keep the focus on both these conspiracy theories, but also who Seth Rich was as a person before he entered this sort of, his death was sort of capitalized on it by the right-wing media. And you, one thing I thought was interesting was that you knew Seth Rich socially. Tell me about that. Yeah, and I wouldn't go so far as to say he and I were friends or buddies or anything like that, but we ran in similar social circles here in D.C. I have friends who were good friends with him. We went to some of the same parties through this sort of connected social circle, played and to this day still play on a mediocre weekend rec soccer team that he used to play on as well. It was a team that came out of the polling firm he used to work for. Shout out team Margin of Terror. And so it's a weird story, and I'm sure you guys would both understand this. It started from a weirdly personal place, which isn't often how these big stories that we write about get kicked off. I heard about it from a friend who texted me and sent me the first NBC Washington link to young man killed in Washington, D.C. before any of the conspiracy theory stuff happened. And there was just that sort of moment of shock. Wow, like this guy that I had seen and run in similar circles with had met, tragically shot, and they don't know who did it. I mean, that's terrible. And a little bit of there before the grace of God go I. I have definitely walked home from a bar in Washington, D.C. later than I probably should have. And of course, from there, following this story of the murder of Seth's murder in, in July of 2016 in the middle of a presidential campaign. So as a political reporter, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, this will be in the headlines for a couple of days or a week or two at most. But, you know, then this is going to recede into the background. We'll all move on to whatever the next craziest, insane thing in this crazy, insane 2016 campaign is going to be. And Seth's family 
will have the space and the privacy, the the peace and quiet to grieve this horrible loss of their son. And that's not what happened. This guy, Seth Rich, who was passionate believer in voting rights, passionate believer in democracy, he would dress up and head to toe stars and stripes every 4th of July, not in with a touch of irony either. I and mean, we've all kind of done that America's birthday. But with him, it was not ironic. And he was a true believer in the sort of fundamental values of of this fine country we live in. And so to watch this tragedy that happened to him and his family then kind of curdle into something totally bizarre. There was a moment I remember in sort of late 2016 where I thought to myself, it's like, all right, I have to sort of take off my, it, it might have even been, to be honest, Will, when I read your really great and way ahead of the curve city paper story. Thank you very much, Andy. People often forget that's the deep lore. Yeah, the- <laughs> It is. And I remember reading it at the time. I might have even picked up the city paper at the time, the hard copy, as I often did. I guess I had never kind of connected like that guy that, with, again, sort of ran in the same pack that I did in some ways. And then I'm like reading about it. Here's this story from Will Summer. And it's like, wait a minute, how did this happen? And why did this happen? And who could possibly think that Seth Rich is like some modern Paul Revere MAGA martyr who is like looking down from heaven on election night 2016 and rejoicing in Donald Trump's victory. There was just something there that was too unbelievable for me. And so I kind of took off my DC guy hat and put on my reporter's hat and have just been sort of following the story from there. So I guess I should blame you, Will. (laughs) for setting me down this path. (laughs) Well, Andy, one reason I wanted to have you on the podcast here is because I feel like the Seth Rich case really lays the groundwork or sort of an early model of what we see now where the right-wing internet and media and politicians kind of conspire to just ruin some really random person's life, or in this case, the people who are grieving them. I think more recently of, let's say, of these sort of random election workers like Ruby Freeman in Georgia, who, because they a blurry security video made something innocuous that they did seem like to very jaundiced eyes that they were trying to steal the election, who suddenly are getting death threats, have to flee their home, stuff like this. More recently, obviously, the Sandy Hook stuff has been in the news with the Alex Jones trial. What is going on with this? I mean, it seems like this is something that happens over and over. Is there anything to be done about it? Oof, man. How long is this podcast? Like 12 (laughs) hours, right? You're asking the questions that I started asking myself and realized that I didn't think I could encapsulate everything about the Seth Rich story in one news story or five news stories. Those were the questions that made me think, maybe this thing is a book because there's just something bigger going on here and it's connecting. The Seth Rich story is a through line almost that connects that to Pizzagate, to QAnon, Stop the Steal, now this election denial attack on election workers. I wish I could say that I that I saw that connection early on, the sort of idea connection, the thematic connection. What I really honestly saw early on was the people who linked this thing together. And the people also are kind of helpful to explain you know, what could be done about it. There's a character in the book, a lawyer named Mike Gottlieb. He's here in Washington, D.C. He did some work in the 2016 campaign trying to basically stop Roger Stone from Roger Stoning, as he always does in the lead up to the 2016 election. Roger Stone, if you might remember, was doing what we could call Stop the Steal 1.0 in 2016, sending misleading text messages and tweets and just generally screwing with people in the election. And so Mike Gottlieb did some work there. And I think like a lot of people saw Trump get elected and think to himself, like, holy shit, like we have like an Infowars president now. Like this is 
The new president literally went on Infowars in 2015 and said great things about Alex Jones. Like, what is going on? What? And this is the possibilities stemming from this could be horrifying. Then took on another client a couple of weeks after the election, Comet Ping Pong, a destination that your listeners will know quite well, target of the Pizzagate conspiracy theory. And so Mike goes to work for the owner of Comet Ping Pong and, and Comet Ping Pong itself, trying to sort of fight back against the Pizzagate attacks and online smears and all that. And Mike eventually goes on to help the Rich family and represent Aaron Rich, Seth's brother, after Aaron got sucked into the whole conspiratorial vortex because he was trying to defend his dead brother. And for the crime of trying to defend his dead brother, Aaron then became the target of conspiracy theories. So I saw these people being connected and I thought, God, that's interesting. This guy, Mike Gottlieb, has been there at all these different points in the last four or five years. And he's a through line. And then I kind of saw the thematic through line. And I do think that Mike is a good person to understand and to follow because after he helps Aaron in litigation, Mike realizes that there's not a lot of resources for people who become the targets and the victims of these, you know, viral conspiracy theories. You know, we need something more organized or more robust, for lack of a better word to put it, to help people like Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss, the election workers in Georgia that you mentioned who were the target of horrific online lies. And so this group, Law for Truth, has been launched in the last year, year and a half, I think. Mike helped establish that. And that is really a group of lawyers that are working on representing people like election workers who've been targeted, who've been, in another case, a guy who's been attacked by conspiracy theories in Pennsylvania, conspiracy theories that were sort of spread by Project Veritas. So there is work being done to try to respond to this and to try to protect people. The only problem is that it's so reactive. The damage in some ways has already been done. I don't know what the proactive solution is here. I think a lot of people are trying to figure that out. Yeah, Andy, there's, I guess, one of the remedies, obviously, as you were kind of alluding with sort of legal assistance is Seth Rich's family sued Fox News and the settlement or whatever. And at the time that this was all going down, I was heavily focused. I was reporting on media back before it was editing Media Vertical. There's all these characters like Ron Butowski, who I'm sure you get into, and guys who were sort of feeding this to Fox News. But do you think that even after taking this matter into the courts, into arbitration, do you think like places like Fox News and some of the hucksters who participated in this, do you think they've learned any lessons from it? I do think that the courts are sort of firewall for people who've been targeted and victimized by these conspiracy theories. And I do think that Joel and Mary Rich's lawsuit against Fox News and a few other Fox-affiliated people and Aaron's separate lawsuit, I do think they illustrated a couple of key things. One is that the courts are still a place you can go and say, these are the facts. These are not true. These things that conspiracy theories or MAGA influencers or Fox News reporters or on-air commentators, whatever. It's a place where you can still separate fact from falsehood, facts from conspiracy theories, which I think Joel and Mary's lawsuit, and especially Aaron Rich's lawsuit, really showed. And I do think that there is a deterrence element to this as well. Fox News does not seem to want to go anywhere near the Seth Rich story or anything related to Seth Rich after what happened with these lawsuits. There were settlements in the lawsuits, and I imagine, though I don't know for sure, because those settlements were confidential, that the settlements put some real restrictions on what anyone could say about this whole matter, in addition to Joel and Mary Rich getting a seven-figure payout, which has been publicly reported. 
as a result of the settlement. So I do think that there is a sort of consequence of these kinds of lawsuits fighting back against viral conspiracy theories that send a message, not just to the people who've been sued, but to others elsewhere. There's costs to pay here. You could face that cost if you continue spreading lies. And now there are more lawyers on the beat, as it were, who are bringing these lawsuits to try to create that deterrent effect and to try to show that there are consequences. And there's also these lawsuits that Dominion, the voting machine company, and Smartmatic, the voting software company, have brought against Fox. And I think you can connect those lawsuits to what the riches did in court. You can see a through line between those. And those are going to have a, quite a big impact if the current trajectory holds up in both of those cases. You notice, I mean, Fox News over the past year has been reluctant to fully engage in the election lie stuff specifically because they're the scepter of the lawsuit hanging over them. But I guess the other question I had here is like part of the DNA of the Seth Rich conspiracy theory is definitely in every other conspiracy that's come up after it and also probably before it too, the birtherism, is that it's inherently, I guess, even though you, you can sue because it's been debunked and we think it's been debunked and Fox News was kind of held accountable as a large corporate news entity for pushing it. But the fever swamps, I imagine, are still like still believe it because it's inherently unfalsifiable in some way, because no matter what you say, no matter what evidence you provide or no matter how much you say, it's, there's no evidence to back up any of the claims. There's always some sort of way of weaseling out of that if you believe in these conspiracy theories of, well, actually, no, no, that's just part of the cover up or whatever. So, I mean, I'm wondering, do you still see this being a particularly popular conspiracy theory on the fever swamps outside of the sort of Fox News places that can actually be held accountable through legal matters, like just online and among people, the true believers, do you still see it being like a big thing to them? I think that there's a certain point where one of these conspiracy theories crosses a threshold and it is implanted in people's mind, especially in the fever swamps forever. Joel Mary's lawsuit and Aaron's lawsuit, I do think created something of a deterrent, but that is for big institutions or people who have something to lose, a Fox News or another media organization or a wealthy individual or a pro-Trump online figure who has a following or who has some kind of clout, internet or otherwise. Those people have something to lose. They have some skin in the game. But in the sort of dark recesses of the internet, the Seth Rich conspiracy theory is always flickering. It's always there. I mean, I still go and check and look and I have a Google alert set for Seth's name. And yeah, this stuff still pops up. It certainly isn't anywhere near the volume of what it used to be during late 2016, 2017, 2018, at the peak of this thing. But it doesn't also look like it's ever going to go away. And I think that's one of the really hard things about these kinds of stories. And it's you know, something that I've talked to Joel and Mary about a lot. There's no closure. There's always that sort of flickering bit of conspiracy theorizing out there, especially in this case about their dead son. And of course, there's always going to be that conspiracy theorizing, but especially because the murder hasn't been solved. And so it's almost like the murder still being unsolved, though actively investigated. It's almost like a tiny bit of oxygen that's sort of piped in to keep this conspiracy theory alive, even in a small way. And people still reach out to Joel and Mary sharing crazy conspiratorial videos, nonsense with them. You just have to feel for them because they can't control that. They can't control who sends them stuff on Facebook or who tweets about Seth online. So there is an element there that is hard to grapple with. How do you move on from this? How do you get closure from this? Is it an arrest and a conviction for the murder? Is it some other kind of, I don't know, apology from Sean Hannity or something, which, by the way, they never got? 
I don't know. And they don't know either. And it's something we talk about a lot. And I'm sure it's something that people who have been part of this or victims of this think about as well. And I'm sure it's something you guys have thought about covering this too. There's just sort of an open-endedness to this in the internet age that just is it's just uncomfortable and hard to deal with. The sad thing, I guess, to me is just even if they did solve the murder, like I was saying, I just feel like you'd probably see still unfalsifiable to the people who truly believe in it is just, well, that's that person was framed or they found the murderer, but that person has this one connection to no matter what. I feel like the, the family's been sucked into something and it's really heartbreaking because they're never going to get out of it even if the murder was solved i don't even know if that's the answer yeah i don't know if it is either and i don't know i mean i thought about that obviously as i was doing the book and people had sort of asked me along the way fairly enough like are you trying to solve this like have you figured out who did it and it's like well obviously that would be great but that's kind of not what i i'm not a homicide detective or a federal prosecutor though i Though I write about some of them in the book, and it was more trying to figure out all the stuff that happened after that moment when Seth was killed in July 2016. But even then, as you put it, like, would really people really be convinced if that were the case? People really have their minds changed and all of a sudden say, oh, yeah, everything we said about Seth Rich up to now, actually, we take back because now we know who did it. No way. There's just no way that'd be the case. I mean, this thing is so implanted in the minds of, I would say, millions of people. It's almost like an article of faith at this point, which is a very strange element of our politics these days. I think that's a great way to sum it up, unfortunately, that this issue remains with us. I think the conspiracy theories that it spawned will continue. I think there's a haunting moment at the end of the book, Andy, where you go to one of these conventions of conspiracy theorists and realize this isn't just people talking about Seth Rich. I mean, this has become an entire industry. And if folks would like to know more about it, they can check out your book. Again, it's called A Death on W Street, The Murder of Seth Rich and the Age of Conspiracy. It comes out on Tuesday. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, Will, so what have you dredged up for Fresh Hell this week? Ooh, I'm toasty. I'm back. Okay, so (laughs) I wanted to talk about Aquarium Gate. Uh Uh-oh, if you've got aquariums, you probably have enough hassles trying to keep your fish alive and deal with the chlorine. But now people might think you're a pedophile. Okay, so here's the deal. You might call it Pizzagate 2.0, although I will say this one does not quite have the liftoff of the original Pizzagate. But a few weeks ago on 4chan, where all these things began, someone noticed that in Texas, there were a couple of Google Map mentions that listed aquariums, kind of a weird thing to find on a Google Maps. And they listed aquariums and they have these names like HR Aquarium, TS Aquarium. So it would be a combination of letters and then it would say aquarium. But in fact, there were no aquariums. And this person was like, ooh, this is spooky to me. And a normal person might say, Oh, some like weird thing on the internet. It's an error. It's a typo or something and move on with their lives. But that's not how things go on 4chan. And so instead, these sleuths, they started driving around in Texas saying, I'm going to find this aquarium. What's really going on here? And they would find a dirt road or they would find a home. So in the grand tradition of assuming that pizza with olives on it means a trafficked kid, they began to think, hmm, an aquarium. That must mean that's where they keep the kids. And it's like in a fish tank or something. Okay, and everyone's getting like real ramped up on this. But Andrew, would it surprise you to learn that there were no aquariums in either the fish way or the cabal way? 
I am shocked. Yeah, so these guys got all ramped up about it, and it turns out Vice had some great reporting on this, as did Media Matters. It turns out anyone can just put whatever they want on Google Maps. And so I could go on right now and say, Will's Podcasting Palace, and Google Maps will, they'll try to verify that. They send you a postcard. But until then, you can kind of put whatever you want, and maybe it'll get deleted. In this case, none of these were verified listings, so you can kind of just put... I want to say it's a troll, but, I mean, it's just hard to know. I mean, maybe someone just decided to really rile up 4chan that day. Maybe this is a totally different group of aquarium enthusiasts that have just crossed paths with these guys. But basically, these were just some sort of errant entries touting these aquariums. Google Maps has since deleted them. But I think for me, it just shows how easy easy, easy it is to rile up these internet mobs. Fortunately, no one was hurt in this. There was not a particular location that they decided, oh, this is really a sex trafficking aquarium. But but these guys really, there's so many people out there with a lot of sleuthing time on their hands. I wish they would sleuth themselves up something better to do with their free time. There's this game that you can play where you can randomly generate any just like a location on Google Maps Street View, and then you have to guess where it is geographically. And I'm just thinking like, I've seen videos of people, because this is what I do in my free time, I've seen people who have mastered the art of it where they now are able to like look at a picture of anywhere in the world and they'd be like, well, that's definitely Filipino grass. So I'm going to say this is on in Philippines or like that's definitely that looks like mud in Louisiana. I'm going to guess Louisiana and they're like, correct. And so I just imagine these people just like in their spare time, like interesting. I see that there's a listing for TS Aquarium and down the road, there's Big Man Aquarium. The funny thing to me also was just how I think Vice reported it that originally a lot of the conspiracy here was that people thought it was maybe listings for gang houses and which say houses or something like that and then of course eventually it oh it always comes back to it's actually code for child trafficking and i just try to imagine like how does aquarium in the sort of greater QAnon vocabulary how does aquarium suggest pedophilia i mean i can tell you i don't think there's any real pre-existing explanation here i mean it really quickly jumps to there was never maybe this guy's a little too hyped about his personal aquarium he thinks it deserves a spot on google maps i mean there's no explanation like that there it just goes instantly to that i think also this really reveals that the sort of the energies unleashed by pizzagate and QAnon and so many other things are still with us i think they've been applied in many ways now to election fraud we see people kind of going through these videos and saying oh this guy was in the election computer room when he should have been and it's kind of the same thing and so we're in sort of a doldrums period for this for this kind of conspiracy theory sleuthing i would say because we don't have an election for a few months i think they're kind of burning their time off playing around with the aquarium sleuthing but i think it will flare up in many more dangerous ways to come do you think like fish and aquarium are going to become code word in the greater the expanded QAnon universe i mean that's a great point i do think that while this one in particular seems to have been sort of put down i do think that aquarium as a word will be sort of adopted into the can and then randomly Joe Biden's going to go to the Baltimore Aquarium or something and be like, wow, these are some great starfish. And they'll be like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Symbolism will be their downfall. <laughs> it's the Wayfair thing all over again, where the various names of different pieces of furniture were actually code words for children that had been sex trafficked and built the furniture by hand or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The Wayfair is a great comparison for this, where it's, it's really just totally spun up out of whole cloth. Well, check back in a few weeks, and I'm sure we'll have another awful example of what the aquarium folks have moved on to. Looking forward to it. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. 
come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian DeMeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.